Hello, and welcome back to Tomato Tomato. I am your host, Talia Sherman, and today's episode is with my cognitive science professor, Megan Zernstein. So this is the second episode in a non-consecutive series that I'm going to call Tomato Tomato with Talia's professors. I took her intro to cognitive science class this semester at Pomona College, and what I really admire about her is that She's so laser-focused on researching bilingual cognition. So in this episode, we discuss her research on bilingual cognition, what she's found, and how her research adds to the field of cognitive science in general, and adds to the evolution of the field of cognitive science. Beyond discussing Professor Zernstein's research and beyond talking about the questions that researchers are currently asking about the bilingual brain and the monolingual brain and about language and linguistic theory, we talk about the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. If you don't know what that is, do not worry. We will define it later in the episode. It's essentially a combination of the theories of linguistic determinism and linguistic relativity. But again, don't worry. We're going to define all these terms later in the episode. For now, I just want to say that I had a great time in Professor Zernstein's class. I had so much fun learning about cognitive science for the past few months. And I really hope that all of you enjoy this episode and learn so much from it because I certainly learned a lot in her class this past semester. So please enjoy Professor Megan Zernstein. Megan Zernstein, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Hi. It's wonderful to have you here. You're my cognitive science professor this mm-hmm. semester, and i uh, loving your class, Intro to Cognitive Science. Oh, that's nice to hear, especially right before the last day of class. So what do you do? Who, who are you? What are you doing? Who are you? Why are you in this field? You're yeah. a cognitive scientist. That's a little bit uh, different from a linguist. Yeah. What's going on? Yeah. So I guess, like, one way to put it would be that I am a just a person that is interested in language is what I started out being interested in as an undergraduate student. And then I got interested in cognition because I found as I was going through my undergraduate and graduate education that, and this is me on my soapbox, is that I think studying language from a cognitive perspective is the best way to understand cognition. So if you want to understand what it means to be a person who thinks and feels and has a life where you're reacting with other people in the real world, Language research is the thing to do. And slowly but surely, I transitioned from being more of a, I guess you could say, psychologist studying language to being a cognitive neuroscientist studying bilingualism to now being a cognitive scientist and cognitive neuroscientist trying to understand all of the above. Do you think that that change is reflective of a change within the field of cognitive science and psych and neuroscience all interacting? Or do you think that's really a reflection of your change as an individual academic mm. researcher I think I mean the boring answer is a little bit of both right um, and just the programs you kind of end up in and how that sort of helps you mature as a researcher and scientist so like the first lab that I ever worked in as an undergrad was a really kind of hardcore research center in cognitive science where they like deliberately wanted to ignore neuroscience that was not their jam it was all about human computer interaction believe me or not and that's obviously not something I do nowadays but that sort of set the stage for me being like, well, what what about psychology? What about neuroscience would be really interested here? So I think it's it's less about where the field is going, although it's definitely getting more interdisciplinary, and more about when you end up in one place and you're naturally curious, you're going to try to seek out those answers in other situations. So if I'd stuttered out at the opposite end, maybe I would have ended up in a human uh, computer interaction lab. So Let's let's talk about your research. Sure. Um, you've done a lot of it. You're still doing so much of it, which I think is cool. Because, like, you know, we're at a teaching institution, but you're still a hardcore researcher. And you research bilingualism. Yes. So what's going on with bilingualism? You have a very unique approach to research. Obviously, it's interdisciplinary. 
which we love. But what's going on with your research? Perhaps some major findings? So I guess one way of tying it back to what I was talking about before, about like the trajectory of how one matures as a scientist, is I started out just being interested in language. And it turns out if you look at just the psycholinguistic literature, hidden in sort of the literature are a lot of studies where the participants just are bilingual, but no one talks about it. Mm. So there's there used to be this assumption that if you had one first acquired language that sort of maintained dominance, that nothing would ever affect that language. And so a lot of psycholinguistic research, and I'm thinking in particular of a lot of EEG research, so neuroscientific research in the Netherlands with Dutch English speakers, where they just look at Dutch processing and then just don't even mention that those are actually really highly proficient multilinguals who also speak English, French, and German. And then they assume that the Dutch is never going to be impacted by those other languages. But we know now, after a couple decades of research, is that your second, third, or fourth languages can also have an impact on your first. That it's not just this like rock of Gibraltar, basically. It's permeable and it can change. And so I think a lot of what I am interested in doing is sort of tearing down um, some of those initial assumptions and trying to demonstrate some ways that bilinguals are actually really highly capable and are doing things that monolinguals are not able to demonstrate in the same way because they only know one language. In going through your publications mm -hmm. and in going through the slides that you had for our class, it's really clear to me that bilingualism is very dynamic and learning a new language is a dynamic process. And when you learn a new language, it influences the other languages you know and vice versa. Mm -hmm. And that's all really cool to me. And that kind of led me to noticing to this pattern in at least two of your publications where you refer <laughs> to the bilingual brain yeah. as as plastic. In yeah. a paper from 2018, quote, research suggests that bilingual language processing is, at its core, plastic. Proficient speakers, listeners, readers, and learners all appear capable of exploiting multiple strategies to regulate their languages. And then in a paper from 2022, you talked about the plasticity of the bilingual brain. Yeah. So you mentioned to me that this might not be a metaphor, although I called it a metaphor. I guess, it, I guess maybe it actually is. And I've just been so embedded in the literature and the field so long that I'm like, no, no, this is a very useful, meaningful, very concrete way of referring to like cognitive processing. So I think... <laughs> What we're referring to there, if I remember correctly, is thinking about dynamic reactions that bilinguals have to their environments. So a lot of this idea about bilingual brains being plastic and being adaptive comes from Abitalebi and Green's adaptive control hypothesis. So this idea that a bilingual person is going to be immersed in a particular location. So if you remember back to like our bilingual cognition lecture, I showed you pictures of the brain and the sort of brain networks that are involved in helping you manage competition between the languages, right? And those same brain networks are also involved in managing just all kinds of competition, just controlling your ability to interact ably and efficiently in the real world. Well, according to this adaptive control hypothesis or ACH, you might be in particular contexts that essentially put you in modes that are going to exercise those skills in different ways. So let's say, for example, that you're a person who is a bilingual and we won't make assumptions yet about like what your language balance is, whether one's more dominant or the other. You just know at least two languages proficiently enough to use them. But you happen to be in what's called a single language context where you only use one language for a really long time. The effect that that context has on you is going to be very different over time and it will change you and you will adapt to it. You should adapt to it, right? In comparison to if you were in a dual language context. Maybe you have a language that's more used with your friends and family and then you have another language you use at work or as part of education, right? Yeah. 
those two contexts can be very different in how they force you to switch between your languages and maintain your languages in different ways. Now compare those to what's called like a dense code switching context. So we could think about sort of Caribbean dialects of Spanish used maybe in like Puerto Rico, for example. So code switching communities with Spanish and English in Puerto Rico, that's very different because it's not just two languages being present, it's two languages being present and opportunistically mixed. And so those are just three potential circumstances that can have an effect on the different recruitments of those brain regions involved in helping you control your languages and use them efficiently. There are sometimes referred to as open control versus non-open control, where like code switchers can basically say, I'm opening up the parallel activation of my languages and I'm just going to switch in a way that follows regular statistical properties of code switching, but also is opportunistically taking advantage of how my languages happen to be active and whether or not my um, communicative partner is also a code switcher. Right, so you have to be really sensitive to that as well. Um, whereas even in a dual language context for a non-code switcher, that's going to be very different and more effortful perhaps having to switch between speakers and between contexts. And so because that's different long-term over decades, it's likely to have a very different repercussion on your brain. Right. Yes. That's a really great summary and I feel like I'm still processing that, but um, it's interesting to compare that to code switching in general and like mm -hmm. dialect code switching. Mm -hmm. Obviously the way we classify what is a dialect and what is a language is inherently very political and yes. there's not like an actual definition of these yeah. things. But I'm in a sociolinguistics class and the literature there is very much, it's all about the opportunistic situation. When you use one language or one dialect versus another, it's about audience design or style shifting, whatever it may be. But there's not so much focus on the cognitive elements or the cognitive control elements that, yeah. that play into switching between dialects. Whereas with bilingualism, there is that layer there. Yeah. There's also this like cognitive side of it where there's this sort of intuition that if you are code switching, there's a difference between that and language switching, where code switching is something that you have voluntarily chosen to do. Right. Whereas overt language switching, being forced to switch, is therefore going to be something you're reacting to that you potentially didn't expect. And so teasing those apart, especially in perception, is really difficult. Whereas maybe if you want to have like habitual code switchers read sentences that include code switches at normal places where they would be licensed in a sentence, you may need to ask a lot of really detailed questions about the code switching experience of your participants, because if they don't code switch, their reactions to them are incredibly different in the brain and in behavior than if they do habitually code switch. And so when it comes to dialectal code switching, there's this additional question, which is, think about two languages that are active and all of the levels of representation in those languages, where across those two languages, they could agree sometimes and yeah. they might disagree at others. When it comes to a dialect, it le at least across like how we might define dialects, there's a question about how close or far apart those dialects are and how much is potentially actually competing. And so I think there's a lot of file drawer data out there. Basically experiments that researchers have conducted where they began to look at dialect switching, but weren't able to really capture why you should expect the dialects to potentially compete with one another in a way that you could you could exploit in a cognitive experiment. And so I often see it in like poster format at a yeah. conference or just a presentation um, from like a grad student, like at, at an R1 university, but I rarely see it published. But it's really interesting to think about because especially if you think about language to dialect being like a spectrum, there's gotta be a lot at play there. So, 
I really want to get to the Sapir Whorf Hypothesis because that was my favorite reading that you assigned for the class. Oh, great. I was obsessed with it. I was like linguistic relativity, linguistic determinism. I, I For a second there, I was like, I'm a linguistic determinist. And then I <laughs> kind of read a little deeper and I was like, maybe I'm not. Sorry, take it back. Okay, let's define these these key terms. So yeah. linguistic determinism, the, the theory that the language we speak determines mm-hmm. thought, determines what we're capable to conceptualize, the thoughts we have, the way we conceive of the world. Linguistic relativity being that language influences thought, yes. the thoughts that we have, the conceptions we make, the things that we're able to understand. Uh, the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis being a combination somewhat yeah. of the two. Lyra Boroditsky, our fave, mm-hmm. badass woman researching language, mm-hmm. has done a lot of research, um, and I'll link her TED Talk in the episode description. Yeah. Uh, look at how, you know, in some languages and cultures and communities where they don't have left and right, but they speak in cardinal directions to him. You know, they always know where they are in relation to north, south, east, west, whereas you and I have no idea where north, south, probably east, west are right now. I, oh, I doubt I could tell you. But also how, you know, we have colors in the English language and then other languages have more words for different yeah. categories for different colors, mm-hmm. things like that. And there's tension there of like whether or not we're able to conceptualize or whether or not we're able to understand certain things that are able to be understood by speakers of other languages simply because we are not native speakers of that language. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of grammar and substrate effects, right? Mm-hmm. So what is your take on the sapir Whorf hypothesis? Fill in any gaps that I missed. Yeah, so so I will be honest, the reason I try to lecture on it from a very open perspective where I don't provide any biases is because I kind of just don't know myself. Yeah. I'm definitely not a linguistic determinist. I'd be surprised to meet one, really, honestly. Um, But I think there's also a question about to what extent do the findings that suggest linguistic relativity is true, how much do they really extend beyond the single experiments that like you might discuss, right? So you talked about the idea about having different color categories and how they can affect things like color discrimination and perception. Question is like, how much is that representing thought in its entirety? And then how much would that extend to all types of people who maybe speak like Russian? where you have multiple words for blue, for example. My best insight into it comes from this sort of bilingual cognition literature that we don't talk about in class that speaks to something you sort of brought up, this idea about maybe like what happens in the different languages you know and do you have access to thought from those perspectives? And if you think about it, what might be the barriers to you having access to using a language and having it impact you in that way? One could be, maybe I'm less proficient. Another could be, maybe I acquired the language much later, and so I just have additional boundaries in place for me to be able to become truly proficient. And there's this interesting intersection, I think, between the language and thought literature and also sort of emotional resonance in language about this idea that there may be something that is less emotionally resonant in either a later learned language or a second language or less proficient language. So if you think about like, what would be an example for um, like for you of like a language you feel less proficient in? Spanish. Okay, yeah. yeah. Do you feel like you could joke as well in Spanish? No. Do you see maybe a trajectory for you leading into the future where you could eventually joke in Spanish? Yeah. Yeah. What things do you think would help you? get to that point. 
Uh, consistent immersion. Yeah, so like exposure yes. to the statistical distribution of the languages, so yeah. that you so you sort of more automatically pick up on like what would potential like amusing choices be. Um, but at the same time, even when you're beginning to acquire a language, you also like can play around with it in the way that children do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which feels weird to say of adult ac- late acquisition, but it is true. You'll find things funny for different reasons in a way that like a native speaker wouldn't. Yeah. So that's where this begins to break down slightly. But the same mm-hmm. is true about getting like the social pragmatics of a language and understanding why a native speaker would find something funny. That can be something that's that's kind of a barrier. And there's some really interesting research that suggests that things may not resonate for you as much in that second language as it does in your first. For example, taboo words. Things like if you heard like a caregiver or or like family member yell your name or something in an accent that's more like your native language versus your non-native language, you'll react to it much more viscerally, right, in the native. And then there's also some suggestion that whether or not you're forming decisions and trying to make decisions in your first or second language, dominant or non-dominant, it can change how rational you are. And so this gets back to a little bit of sort of neuroeconomics, just a little bit, like this idea that you assume, hopefully, that everyone's rational and a rational decision maker, which is not really true, but we can all hope for, right? Um, And it turns out that emotion really gets in the way. And emotion is a really big component of why it's so hard to make rational decisions, especially in your first language. Well, what about in your second? What do you think might happen? I'm guessing it's a little harder. It's harder, yet, because you don't have the emotional resonance, you might make more rational decisions. Oh, okay. Yeah, so have you ever heard of the trolley problem? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the trolley problem would be one example. You would end up saving more lives and be able to more quickly make that kind of decision to potentially change the switch of the train to go down the track to hit that one person versus keep going on the track that it's on to hit five, for example. Yeah. Where part of the choice of saving more people versus killing fewer involves you having to be active, like an active participant in that. It turns out that that kind of stuff seems to be easier to do in a language that you're slightly less proficient or less dominant in. Yeah. So that's thought, right? That's decision making. And so there's now a sort of this question in the field that I really don't think has been resolved, but a couple students in the cognitive science program have been trying to pursue in different projects in different places, is thinking about, is this a proficiency issue? Do I just need to be exposed and immersed more? Or is it an age of acquisition issue where there's something just very special about acquiring a language when you're a child that resonates with you emotionally, right? right? And that's kind of where the literature is right now. There's no perfect consensus. And it ties in really interestingly with heritage bilingualism. So heritage bilingualism is the idea that you grow up with a home language and that home language may not be a language of status where you're growing up. So for example, that might be in a lot of parts of the United States, Spanish being a home language versus um, English being the language of education and status in many parts of the country. Well, you might have grown up at the, in the home speaking and using Spanish, especially with your family members. And you might continue using Spanish with your family members, especially if your family recently immigrated and you're a second generation citizen, basically. So the question is, what happens with that home language? Usually heritage bilinguals appear to slightly lose proficiency or they don't gain the reading and writing proficiency in that home language in the same way that one might do if you only knew one language, for mm-hmm. example. And yet at the same time, there's some research that suggests that because it was your first, it emotionally resonates for you in a very different way than even your dominant language as English ends up becoming for a lot of these speakers. So it's a very nuanced aspect of bilingualism that's actually so incredibly common in the United States that I, that I just as I talked about how those Dutch speakers 
were accidentally multilinguals in that early psycholinguistic research and that their bilingualism or multilingualism was ignored, a lot of bilingualism research includes research on heritage bilinguals, but they don't talk about their heritage bilingualism. So right. that's something else that needs to sort of add to this literature. Yeah. So the, what are the key terms there? Emotional resonance. Yes. That, okay. Because mm-hmm. that's that's really interesting. Of yeah. Like, you know, your first language being more emotionally resonant and then that influencing the thoughts that you're able to have. Mm-hmm. I think one of my biggest qualms with the safe warp hypothesis and linguistic determinism is that absolutely I'm sure language influences the thoughts that we have. Mm-hmm. But it, I don't think that it influences the thoughts that we we could have or like the conceptions we're able to have yes Yes. in english we don't have a future tense and then therefore yeah maybe we're better planners because we actually have to like add a lexical item to talk about the future and then you know we save our money and we go to the gym or Mm -hmm. whatever it is but also it doesn't preclude you yeah from being able to conceptualize those things yeah it just leads you in a particular direction and you're not going to stay there forever right it just helps it it, it, like um the way i refer to is like it obliges you to focus on something at least for some time Right. And the example you give in class of how in English we have counterfactuals. Mm -hmm. If I had done this, I would do this. Mm -hmm. That's not really a thing in in Chinese. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that someone who speaks Chinese could not conceptualize of a... Yeah. It just means... But but will they ever? That's, I guess, another question too is, but will they? I think they will. I think the difficulty is demonstrating that. So there's always this really tough tension between can I demonstrate this in, in a lab or with data versus is this probably something that really exists? And I think it's really important as a especially a language or a cognitive researcher or a ling- linguist, basically, to think about like, no, but I know this is what people actually do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and still try your best to come up with a paradigm or analysis that can still demonstrate what you're pretty sure is there and try to wed the two together without being biased in one particular direction. Yeah. But I feel like it's an endless, endless question. Like what does and doesn't language change about what thoughts we can have? One of the readings you gave gave all these other words. It was like, Oh, well, we disagree with linguistic determinism. We disagree with linguistic relativity, but language is an augmenter, mm-hmm. a spotlighter. And mm-hmm. I was like, you're just yeah. you're saying the same thing. Like, yeah, you're not... it's, it's, and I think another thing is that it's just, I think, especially because language use is so ubiquitous that it's really hard to disentangle what it means to say, make a decision or perform well in a perception task while divorcing language. Like if you yeah. ever go to like any sort of, um, main department, whether it's in a psychology department or some cognitive science department, if you look at all the areas of research, you might find that whether or not someone's studying memory or perception or something else, that they're using language stimuli. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and from a language scientist perspective, it's like, it's tough because you're kind of like, wait a minute, you're studying language. You just never talk about it or control your stimuli. And so I think there's just this understanding that it's always involved and it's always the best way to collect data from participants is to speak with them and ask them questions and have them inform you about how they feel about things, et cetera. So I guess my answer to your question is like uh, a sad, like I don't actually care (laughs) about the severe warp hypothesis, really. I care more about reasons why you may not be able to replicate some of the experiments. And I, I, this, this strong intuition that a lot of the variability that might be at play would be because of multi-language contact. It's just inherent in it, you know? So like a lot of the studies we were talking about, working with like Chinese and English, for example, used Chinese English bilinguals as participants. And so there's a question of like, okay, there must've been some language interaction happening there, some language interference potentially, that's going to be a play that might be, and I'm biased in this direction, more interesting, right? More interesting because yeah. that would suggest that there might be modes that someone can move in and out of. Mm. But even with the emotion bilingualism literature, 
I think people doing that research will be the first to tell you that it's not that it changes your personality, because you could always make any of these decisions. It just changes the likelihood that you're going to trend in a particular direction, potentially. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's an awesome answer. I like yeah. That. No one's ever said that's one of my questions. I don't care. Oh. I love it, though. It's great. <laughs> it's bilingual cognitive advantage. Yeah. Yeah. Shall I? Yes. Okay. So one thing that's really interesting to think about. So thinking about when the cognitive science field started, when do you, when would you say that that would be about? Oh gosh. Wrong well, answer is accepted. Just I did do an entire test on this. So it was the nineteen what is the fifties was like yeah, cognitive revolution. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Okay. And so then think the cognitive neuroscience revolution happens a couple of decades later because we have to have the techniques yes. ready for us to start exploring what's happening in the brain. After that, the bilingualism field started. Now, bilingualism has always been of interest. I think some of the first initial studies, which are quite unfortunate and have a sort of eugenicist perspective from the 1930s, focused on looking at IQ differences between bilingual and monolingual children. But the goal from a very westernized perspective was to demonstrate that there was something wrong with being exposed to anything but English from an earlier age. And that thankfully has been really broken down, but that still persists. There's this vibe that's a little hard to get rid of. And so some of the reactions to that earlier IQ literature came and I say, I'd say maybe 90s, 2000s, of sort of a reaction where it's like, no, let's try to demonstrate that bilingual children are fine. <laughs> that they are still able to develop, you know, just just as well as their monolingual peers. And then even if something's different, that doesn't mean there's something bad that's happening. And in fact, you could even go so far as to say that because someone could develop normally speaking more than one language, that maybe monolingual children are being given a disservice. And so that was an initial change that then led to this idea that maybe <laughs> being exposed to more, more than one language has an effect on your development that could be positive. Mm. So that's where the trajectory happens. Now, over time, what's ended up happening is that because it's such a young field, and so if you think about the sort of theoretical development side of trying to explain what cognitive processes are involved and how bilingualism might affect you, how it interacts in your mind and brain, really only began like a couple of decades ago. So we're in this state where we're simultaneously doing theoretical development while also trying to collect data and understand that data. And so I think a lot of people experience this disconnect and sort of uncomfortableness about being in this sort of unknown wild west. And then also maybe not being totally trained and able to come up with a theoretical explanation for what's going on the, on the data. And that's a real hard place to be. And so there's, you'll see papers that pop up and they'll talk about like the haze in the literature, the noise, and really it's just variability that has yet to be explained, mm. right? And so I think when it comes to things like understanding the relationship between why being bilingual might affect your cognitive processing outside of language, we're at the earliest stages of understanding those processes. And then some have leapt ahead and said, I'm just gonna compare bilinguals and monolinguals. And then they'll find differences and they'll say, okay, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, I'm done. And then not have a really satisfying, at least to my eye, theoretical explanation for those effects. And so now, and this may just be because I'm thinking of doing that, I'm doing this myself, is that a lot of researchers are now trying to turn back a little bit and be like, okay, sometimes these effects aren't replicated very easily. Sometimes they are. And my honest impression of that is that no duh, <laughs> right? Just as anyone who uses one language is very different from any other person who uses that one language. Monolinguals 
are not some kind of like gold standard for language use. Bilinguals are just so much more incredibly diverse because they speak multiple languages. So trying to put them all in one box would end up causing them to come out at some sort of mean that looks very similar to what monolinguals do, right? right? So essentially showing no disadvantage. And I think people just have a hard time grasping that. And it's very difficult coming up as like a student in the field and trying to understand why more senior researchers seem to have a problem with that. But yeah, one of my mentors would have called it anti-intellectual, but that could be one way of thinking of it. I think it's a pretty fine way of thinking about it. I think another thing that you brought up in class too was like, you know, comparing different bilinguals to each other is interesting because it's like some people are bilingual because of circumstance and some people are bilingual because of opportunity. Yeah. And there are differences here between the languages you're bilingual in and for what reason. Yeah. I remember being at a a cognitive neuroscience conference like before the pandemic. So years ago at this point where someone I knew who does not do this research was like, well, surely if we just had like an international study where we just tested all bilinguals and compared them to all monolinguals, we'd be able to find this out. And I was like, no. No, 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 no. It would just be like saying we're going to find out like food preferences where everyone's just different for so many different reasons that it's all just going to wash out. A much more intellectually curious way of looking at it would be to say maybe monolinguals aren't the best comparison. Maybe it would be better. And this is where I hope the field is moving. Whether or not I think it will happen soon, I don't know, is to follow bilingual people throughout development. Basically do longitudinal research to understand how these things change over time. And the pandemic sure kept that from happening, but I think it's getting closer and closer. And I think it's now understood in a lot of smaller circles in the bilingualism field that that needs to happen. So that leads us to the fave question of mine, the personal favorite. Why linguistics and cognitive science broadly interpret this any way you want? Yeah. Why? So so one way I could interpret it would be like a defense of our department, Yeah. for example, right? And so I could go back to maybe something I said at the very beginning when we started speaking was this idea about what could potentially bring fields together. And I think understanding and studying language is one of the greatest examples of that. And I think that studying language is one of the greatest examples of what could be one of the most pure forms of a liberal arts sort of research investment, right? Because it brings together so many different potential perspectives that I think it's very special that we have this particular department. And I think it's very special that everyone in our department studies language in some capacity, whether they're a sociolinguist, a field linguist, a syntactician, a bilingual cognition expert, or someone who studies like memory and aging in language. All of us in some capacity want to understand what language is. Now, what's also very special is that if you have a department or group that come from different disciplines, you will often be in, in places where you don't understand one another. And so I think another exciting thing about our department is that a lot of us are just getting to know one another. We're a relatively young department. And because of that, there's a lot of exciting potential for developments in the future. Maybe not necessarily like tons of like cross collaboration, but a lot of cross talk that I'm actually really excited about too. So one example of this would be like, I remember Mike Dierks asking me like, well, how is it possible for like a psycholinguist or cognitive neuroscientist to say, I'm gonna create this experiment that assesses how language works. How, how like something about language works. And then he said, from a field ling- linguist perspective, they don't even know what language is, right? <laughs> right? 
And I don't even know if this would be a satisfactory answer, but my, my only response could be, why not? Like, why not try and then be open to the possibility that you're going to be wrong, right? Because if, if you had to wait, it would, it would take a very long time until we could fully document all aspects of language use in the field. So it's sort of like, this is what we have for now. And so we're going to try. Another perspective from like sort of this cross-disciplinary look comes from a friend of mine who's a phonologist who said that, <laughs> I don't know if she'd feel this way anymore, but when she joined one of the labs I was in at Penn State, which had a lot of cognitive scientists in it and not as many linguists at the time, and she was like, it's like you cognitive scientists are using language to understand cognition, but not to understand language. And I was like, well, no, it's more that cognitive scientists think of language as a cognitive phenomenon. Right. Right. But I think it's good to be sort of pulled off your high horse by sort of other disciplines frequently and to be forced to be like, oh, not everyone thinks this way. I should try to sort of take in this different perspective because the better able you are to explain your interests and your research and your ideas to a wider multidisciplinary audience, the more impact it's going to have. Yeah. And that should be the hope. There's no excuse if you're going to go into some field that uses language. There's no excuse to not be able to explain to someone who's a layperson what you're doing because there should always be some connection to how someone else uses their language. And I think that's a lot of fun and is very different from a lot of other fields, for yes, example. Yes, I know. I'm like yeah. desperately trying to understand literary theory right now. And it's like, <laughs> I'm not, I'm, it wasn't meant for me. It was meant for them because they wrote it. Okay. Like, well, my, my version of that when I was an undergrad was macroeconomics or something like that it was just like also I, not meant for me it's like, like i yeah. know de definitionally why it applies to other people's like real lives but it's that's different knowing that and then being able to convince someone of that at least at least from a very beginner novice perspective was very difficult for me and i guess another way of phrasing this could be not just why linguistics and cognitive science but also for me personally why bilingualism and that would be if you want to understand cognition, study language. If you want to understand language, study bilingualism. And therefore, there should be sort of this sort of circular aspect to this where bilingualism can therefore help impact and help you understand cognition. It's, it's, it's sort of a very summed up sweet representation. And I think a good sort of self-reflection of me not being part of the bilingual communities that I often work with and sort of like um, try to document in a lot of my research, I need to be very careful and think about like, what is my goal here? Why am I involved at all? And that's that's sort of my sweet explanation is that I want to understand cognition. And I think everybody, not just bilingual people, should be understanding bilingualism. Yeah. I love that answer. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Oh, yeah. You're more than welcome. This I is a lot of fun. Thank you so much for listening to Tomato Tomato. I have been your host, Talia Sherman, and that was my interview with Professor Megan Zernstein from Pomona College. Again, you can find links to all her research and more, so many fascinating things, linked in the episode description. Now that you understand the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis with a bit more clarity, I would highly, highly recommend that everyone go watch Lyra Boroditsky's TED Talk, which is linked in the episode description. It is a TED Talk, one of my absolute all-time favorites, about how language influences thought. As always, please rate, review, and perhaps if you're feeling generous and you want to make my heart sing, subscribe to the podcast so that you can be notified when new episodes drop, because believe me, you want to be notified when new episodes drop. In the next episode, I will be interviewing my sociolinguistics professor and my all-time favorite linguist, Professor Nicole Holliday. 
So stay tuned for that. And I will speak to you in the next episode. Bye.